Hi, everyone, and welcome to Top Stock, Episode 8, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Bursch. In Episode 7, we played Part 1 of my conversation with Keith Olbermann. He shared parts of his vast knowledge of Top's history as well as his own personal background and how card collecting molded the man we see and hear today. If you haven't heard it yet, scroll down on whatever device you're using right now and take a listen. In Part 2, which I'll play for you in a bit, Keith and I discussed the impact of Jackie Robinson, Mickey Mantle, and how a baseball card can act as a transporter through space and time. Here is part two of my interview with Keith Olbermann. A Dodger infielder here, but it's from the 1952 set. Oh yes, Pee Wee Reese. Great colorized shot of him from Ebbets Field, part of the last series, which even when I was a kid, these cards, when the, the average 1952 card was available from a dealer for, say, 35 cents, this was $2. Mm. And because it was Reese, it might be $3. When I was eight years old and had started f- and dove fully into the end of the baseball card pool, I became interested in the older cards as well because kids just tended to throw them away. One kid found in the garbage in uh, late summer 1967 a collection from some kid from the 50s that had this card and about 20 or 30 other high-numbered 1952 tops and assorted Bowmans and tops from 1950 through 1954. And he thought they were mistakes because they said things like New York Giants on the back instead Uh. of New York Mets. And I said, well, if you don't want them, <laughs> he said, you have, a, you have a little swimming pool in your backyard, don't you? We had a little plastic above ground $30 swimming pool that my dad would um, unplug every September. <laughs> and there'd be this you know, landslide of, uh, with water and mud. And then he put it back up. And I mean, it was not, this is not an Olympic-sized pool. The kid says to me, well, you can have the cards if I can come over and have a swim in your pool whenever I want to. Oh, my goodness. Sold. <laughs> So I still, I, I think I've upgraded the card at some point, but I still have the garbage dump pile Pee Wee Reese. And from 19, I had it when I was eight years old. So it was trimmed, but it was, a, it was like, because there were guys who were in the 67 set who were in the 52 set, this was like finding out that former pharaohs of Egypt were still alive. So Hoyt <laughs> Wilhelm, who I saw pitch, was in the 1952 set. It was like, is Shakespeare also alive? You know, <laughs> where's Christy Matthews? Right, no, but yeah, but I mean, it's like you, these other figures you mentioned here, and I've heard something about King Arthur. Is he still here? Is there a card of him too? Is he in the 52 in the 67 sets? Is he, will he be in the seventh series later on? So there's the the linkage of baseball fans, and what I like to talk about is how if you come into baseball now, you can not only go forwards, you can go backwards, is illustrated by the point of this card and, and what, what that evokes in, in my memory here. Yeah, and Old Harold. another infield mate of Pee Wee Reese. Oh, Jackie. Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Handing to him the 1955 Jackie Robinson. Correct. Yeah, that's, it. that's um, the next to last season for him and his, his only appearance on a world championship team and the year he stole home in the mm-hmm. World Series – uh, which later video evidence suggests he was in fact safe, and Yogi Berra, despite his protestations, was wrong 
Uh, I never got to meet Jackie Robinson. One of my great regrets, but um, you know the, the 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 importance of him to American history. Uh, just ask yourself, what would have happened in this country if his first year, instead of hitting two ninety seven and winning the Rookie of the Year award, what if he hit one ninety seven? And everybody, the argument against the argument that was used to cover up racism in this country, there were two of them. One was these. African-American players are not good enough to compete with the white major leaguers. So that alone would have not only the next black in the major leagues might have been 1967, and it would have been an excuse that this isn't racism. They just, we don't want them to embarrass themselves. And who knows? I mean, we might have wound up with actual full-fledged apartheid in this country, <laughs> and we wouldn't have gotten, certainly would not have gotten Brown versus Board of Education or any of the efforts to roll back Jim Crow in the South. The man's point in American history is 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 perhaps underrated, but the but there are several men who preceded Jackie Robinson down that path. Nineteen forty seven was the time when it worked, um, and by uh, just coincidence, there's a there's a guy in the city I know where he works on a at a an art store on Fifty Seventh Street who was at that game and is in the background of most of those photos of Jackie Robinson for his first exhibition game. Mm a few days before the official debut. And he still, he still has a job here in the city, goes to work every day. Uh, Eddie. And um, the, the, the guys before him who tried, like in 1884, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker and later his brother Welday, African-American players, played in the then Major League American Association for the Toledo team. The Toledo team played road games in St. Louis, which had been a, a slave... Uh, selling center, and they played games in Baltimore, which was still the Deep South. And this is, you know, 20 years before the Civil War was still at its worst moments. And that man tried to play and integrate baseball in 1884. And the courage and in in not succeeding is an extraordinary thing. Is and you know, Jackie Robinson gets the credit because he got it done. But but him, Walker, and the other guys who followed in various attempts to, you know, sneak people over the color line from 1904, 1917 in the Pacific Coast League, other attempts. Those are those I like to always remember those when we also talk about Jackie. Yeah, he really did kind of represent the final major push that kind of broke that dam. Well, the, here's the here's the other thing. I didn't get this till my dad told me about this when he was in the hospital and he had a, a long last illness that was for long last illnesses was not that bad until the very end. But he was in the hospital for a couple of months, and for some reason we were talking about uh, Martin Luther King and Satchel Paige. And my dad, who had stopped being a baseball fan when the Yankees traded away his favorite player in 1949, Steve Suchak, mm. I said, Dad, he hit 218. I don't care who's my favorite player. They'll do it to you. <laughs> They're the Yankees. And he was right. They did do it to me. Mm, sorry about that. But he said, yeah, I saw Satchel Paige pitch. And I went, excuse me? Whoa. Yeah, he said, yeah. He said, we didn't, I mean, we couldn't afford, well, he grew up in the Bronx. He said, we couldn't afford the Yankee games. We used to go to the Black Yankee games. That was the name of the yep, team. that was. And for one year, they played in Yankee Stadium, and Satchel Paige was on the team. He said, I saw him pitch two or three times. It was extraordinary. Everything you've heard about him and calling the outfielders in and everything else, he used to do that all the time. And I said, but you, you, my dad was a, was a constitutionally liberal and I said, which I know is a surprise to anybody hearing this, <laughs> but I said, why? Well, didn't you? Didn't it strike you kind of odd that there was a Yankees and a black Yankees rather than just one Yankees with people of all sorts on them? He said, 
I'm ashamed to think of it in these terms, but this is what we what we believed. And he grew up in a neighborhood where his best friend was Jewish, and they had kids who had uh, fled Germany and Poland and everything else. There was no overt discrimination or sense that anybody was actually different. The assumption was that, he said, we thought that the black players played on the black Yankees because they wanted to, that they didn't want Whoa. to be part of the, the, the white leagues, that to them, that was their major leagues and what they aspired to the way we aspired to the major leagues. And he said, as I think back about it on this, the, the attempts by the society to reinforce this point of view were constant. And I, he said, I'm ashamed I fell for it. And I said, well, you were 12. <laughs> he said, yeah, he said, but the guys who cleaned that thought up for me were, you know, Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and Martin Luther King. And he said, that's, that's why they're important in American history, because we, the, the, the benign non-racists who helped support segregation were kept in line by this crazy idea that, no, they want to play for one third the salary and they have to go, they have to sleep in buses and they can't come in through the front door because of who, cooties? What is it? What do you think is what, what? The blood is different? No, you can't have a transfusion from one of them. And my father, as I said, just stormed out once of a job interview because the questions were, were subtle attempts to find out whether or not he was Jewish. And he said, no, I'm not. And, they, and the guys all went, Oh, good. And he goes, and I also wouldn't work for any expletive deleted, expletive deleted, expletive deleted errs who would make that part of my job interview. Goodbye. Nice. He was he was ashamed of this. This is a few months before he died. He was ashamed of the idea of it. But he, you know, and I, so it was like uh, there was a whole part of, of supporting racism in sports and in American society that we don't even, it isn't even recorded in the history books. You know, like you said, these players who, you know, didn't get to play mm-hmm. in, in Major League Baseball, at least in, in their primes, I mean, they still, to this day, have that mystique about them. Mm. And, I mean, even Satchel Page, like you said, I played golf with a man two years ago. He was wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers cap. And so I wanted to talk to him about it because clearly this guy doesn't have an L.A. Dodgers hat. He has Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk to him about baseball. And he said that his grandfather pitched against Satchel Page. Wow. And once. Mm-hmm. But still, that is a family story that is passed down. And he said the most impressive moment of his, of his grandfather's life was fouling a ball off. Of yes. Satchel Page. <laughs> And and you get that the idea that you know this mystique isn't going anywhere. Their inductions to the Hall of Fame certainly helped their the fanfare that they can get now, um, but their, the mark that they had was obviously indelible. A man who had an indelible mark on young boys and men who of black, white, purple, Mickey Mantle. You're 1953. That's correct. Second Tops card. 1953. And there's a very good reason why I am not showing you a 1952 Mickey Mantle. Yes. And you know a, a fun fact about that, which is the fact that 1952 Mickey Mantles don't exactly grow on trees. Well, 
Actually, they do. They they are they they are double at least double printed relative to the the uh, average high number. They're they're all scarce, as we alluded to it earlier. But the mantle is one of the more common 1952 right. tops cards. But because of the demand, it might as well be it might as well have been some sort of super chase card, like a, maybe the Hannes Wagner card. Uh, certainly, it is the second second most famous card behind Hannes Wagner. Uh, the 53 is much more for the budget-conscious collector who wants mm -hmm. this. Mickey Mantle came into my life in 1967 because my dad, even though he wasn't a fan, my mom was the remaining baseball fan at that point. She, uh, she, The two of them decided when we went to Yankee Stadium that we would sit behind first base because he was playing first base. And my dad said, and when I said, why are we sitting here? He goes, number seven over there. <laughs> Watch him. He's not what he used to be, but you want you will say eventually that the, your greatest thrill watching baseball was that you got to see Mickey Mantle play. He's not going to play for much longer. Just watch him. You'll see it every once in a while. And for two years, I, whenever we went, we probably saw 30 games between those two seasons. I saw Mantle play in the twilight of his career. And I saw him, I think I saw him hit four home runs. And most impressively, in 1968, I saw him hit a home run against the Oakland Athletics and in the same game, an Oakland Athletics uh, first-year full-time player, he'd been up briefly the year before, first full season in the majors, kid hit a home run as well. His name was Reggie Jackson. Ah, pretty so good. So I saw Mantle and Jackson homer in both games. Wow. Reggie and I have become pretty good friends since then, and I once told him this story, and he went, my God, I've forgotten all about that. We did. That's why I remember him shaking my hands. I was so nervous. I show. I didn't know. I, that's right. I hit a home run in the same game as Mickey Mantle. And he was, and he was, twenty years old again because of the thrill that that man brought to baseball. Simply because the mellifluousness of the name and his reputation, and the fact that in a, you know the early TV days, he was on the TV all October in the World Series every year because the Yankees were there. And then I had my own Mickey Mantle story much later on. In 1985, I had uh, already finished my, my tenure at CNN, and I had gone into local television, which was then the career path. You wanted to get away from cable and go into local TV news. And I was working as a sports director of a station in L.A., and we got a, a, an email or an email. We didn't get it on email. It, was, <laughs> it came from the future. We got a press release in the mail that said, Mickey Mantle will be in Los Angeles these days, and we, we, we've tried all the bigger stations. Would you like to interview him? He's selling a video, an instructional video. It's like, what time? <laughs> and we were the only ones who said, yeah, sure. And being a New Yorker, obviously I had my motives for doing it. We sat down, and, and it was a pretty good interview, and we had 20 minutes. And at the end of the 20 minutes, I said, I know I only have a little time left. And he went, no, you, you know, I'm enjoying this. You, t you take as much time as you want. This is, this is a good interview. And I was like, what did you say? Whoa. And so we went another 20 minutes, and at the end of it, he's saying, if, you know, if Whitey and I had known we were going to live as long as we did, we would, we would have, you know, taken care of ourselves and done, done better. And I said, you did, you did pretty good. And he said, we would have done better. And it was like the end of it. I said, when he dies, we will be using that clip. And when he died, we used that clip to, uh, seven, eight years later. But at the end of the interview... We were sitting in this hotel room in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and I've just interviewed Mickey Mantle, my childhood hero, and you know I'd met him before and I'd interviewed him before, but there was something about this interview where he was just, it wasn't like Costas's later where he admitted he was an alcoholic and all the rest of that, but it was pretty revelatory and he talked about things he'd never talked about before. And at the end of it, he said, 
So how did that was a really good interview? How'd you how'd you keep all those ideas? You seem to flow from one one topic to the next. How'd you keep it all organized in your head? I said, did you notice I had the little note card in my hand? No, is that? Could you give me some pointers? Because I'm going to do some cable for the Yankees next year, and I I, I have to interview a player every day, and I'm it's scaring me to death. And wow. opening days four months, and I'm having an out of body experience. I heard Mickey Mantle ask me for pointers, and after that, he might as well have been speaking Martian. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> what do these words mean? Cable Yankees? What is the advice? Interviews? What's an interview? And somehow I just said, well, you know write down all I have on this card is since I figured I'd freeze up at some point I have like eight or nine key words that will remind me what it is I wanted to ask you hopefully hopefully I'll remember my, that much of my brain will still work and he said well that's but I can't carry a card because I'm going to be out there on the field I said well write them on your hand and there was a pause and he went well that that that's just genius and I was like <laughs> no but you you could I, I I said you know on the hand that's holding the microphone Write it on the you know underside of your wrist. So opening day 1987 or 1986, he's doing cable for the Yankees, and we're now watching, and everybody's laughing at me because there's your pupil, Mickey Mantle. He's on the field, and sure enough, he starts the interview, and he's got his first question, and he's memorized it, and he gets the answer, and he freezes. But my advice, he has taken my advice, and he has written the question or the reminder you saw him look i saw him look and he wrote it on the top of his wrist oh. so he turned the microphone down and away from both himself and the interviewee and you heard the question was like this and everybody in the room <laughs> roared with laughter nice teachings you know einstein great coaching of mickey mantle who because you didn't make it clear to him where he was supposed to write the words has just screwed up the interview good work and i felt about you know three inches tall but that was my <laughs> that's my mickey mantle story and uh and it was it was the the, the moment of him asking for pointers i was like <laughs> Uh, You cannot get past the idea, if you're of a certain age, that this was the greatest baseball player of all time. He just didn't accomplish all he could have because, like he said, he could have done better. And there's a tragedy in there. And if you read Jane Levy's book about him, you want to find him somewhere in time and space and give him a hug because he he had – there was hell in his life that he never let on about. And it's a great tragedy and that he accomplished as much as he did. Uh, thinking he was going to be dead by by the time he was forty, and being a, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, apparently, uh, and many other things, he uh, he accomplished so much, and you just want to give him a hug and say it's it turned out okay. Well, Mick, wherever you are, yeah. Keith has given you a hug right now. Yep. You know what Mickey Mantle has done for you clearly, mm-hmm. and for so much of of the of that generation is kind of what baseball cards do when you pick them up. Oh yeah, it just reminds you of something in your life, of a time in your life, and is that is that something about collecting that that, that you can really feel? I think that's the essence of it. I think that's why um, you know the, uh, the the baseball card hobby when I got into it was there were only two groups. There were uh, kids who bought cards in packs. There were guys above the age of 35 who assembled maybe twice a year at union halls in this city and in other cities and sold and bought cards that they had either thrown away or stored or whatever and were seeking some 
reconnection because of all the memories that would be return as Marcel Proust, who was, did not appear on a baseball card, once observed that the it's the unbidden memory that is actually the most valuable one. It's when you smell something that you you know you ate in 1967. Or the the ocean smell, or the, or a, the glint, or a piece of music, or uh, I don't think he ever used this as an example, but a baseball card, and it can evoke anything, and you can get teary eyed about. Uh, as I once forecast, I said in the '80s, someday will you know there will be somebody who will get teary eyed when they see a 1987 tops card of Jose Chico Lind of <laughs> the Pittsburgh Pirates, and. I didn't realize it, but now I can do that because that's so long ago. It is, it's the, the Rolf Humph- Humphreys poem about the players remain the same age. The, it's only the man in the stands who gets older. And the baseball card is thus and was then for those, you know, uh, those, those then approaching middle-aged guys who we would see at the card shows, those few of us who were, who were teenaged old-time collectors. And there were like five. I can give you their names. We knew that they were trying to jump back for a second into our age. And we also could therefore tell that if we looked around this hall and looked at all the card dealers, we were going to become one of these 12 templates of, you know, what guys looked like in their 40s and 50s. And that, you know, try to try to take care of yourself so you don't look like the guy with the gigantic beer belly over here. <laughs> Maybe moderate chunkiness over here, that's acceptable when you're, you know, 56 years old. But, yeah, there's no the, – the, 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 the timelessness of the card is essential. And that's why when you look at something like archives or heritage, uh, you know, you're, you're just reusing an old design. What's involved in that? Well, that's the essence of the thing. You know, it's, it's to, to say that baseball is a river. And you are joining it, and you can go as far in as you want, and eventually you will encounter everybody who knows all these stories firsthand or at worst secondhand. And you will, you know, my grandfather attended a game. We thought it was. We thought he narrowed it down to either 1911 or 1912. And that's, you know, I carry his memory, not obviously in in reality, but in in a sense, I carry his memory of that event. And, you know, I, I knew Buck O'Neill and, and I knew and saw Mantle play. And I, you know, I've often thought how many hall of famers have I actually seen play? How many members of the 3000 hit club? And you're going to, you know, when I die, there will be players I don't know are going to be in the 3000 hit club Mm -hmm. who I will have seen. And there's a continuity to that where you, you go to a place where you are in fact ageless and it's um, the the baseball card might be the the greatest expression of it. Uh, scorecards are nice, videotapes are nice. The only thing that comes close to a baseball card in terms of evoking the past are old radio broadcasts, mm, because true. with a radio broadcast, a tape of like Koufax's Perfect Game, you can recreate the uh, the conditions of listening to that. Uh, or an ordinary game from 1970 or 1940. There are some tapes from the 30s. You can recreate that because it does, it doesn't sound. There's nothing intrinsically different about it. You have a videotape of a game. If you had a videotape of Koufax's perfect game, it would be black and white, low def, grainy, tough to watch, uh, poorly lit stands. Nobody there wouldn't look. It would not look as good as your imagination can provide. So the card being 
you know, the quality that baseball cards have always been, uh, and particularly the Topps ones. And the quality of the of the audio broadcasts of old ball games are, you know, are very similar to what we see today. And therefore, they they transcend time. And you know, since we're all going to die, transcending time is a really good thing to have with you. You got that going for you, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, a little Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. So, Keith, I'm going to end with this because obviously, collecting baseball cards and and, and baseball cards themselves, they, it's changed over time and, that, and with different technologies, different things to distract kids, basically. Yeah. It's gone down. Right. What do they do? They don't do anything. They just sit there. Yes. Right, right. Please explain to parents, mm-hmm. to people who know younger folk, why collect? Well, if you don't collect, I will spend more money on the available cards. That's the first thing. <laughs> so you have to consider me in this equation. Of course. I need to keep my money going in other in other things like food and you know supplies for my pets <laughs> and things like that. One of the protectors of the game is 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 the baseball card, and one of the protectors of the game's history and the fact that it has almost from its beginning invited you to go backwards as well as forwards is an essential, tangible thing. And also as time goes by and we have fewer and fewer tangible things and you can hit seven buttons on a computer and get a 3D printing of Mickey Mantle, (laughs) there's something non-authentic about it, about those things and the electronic era. And I'm not just speaking as somebody who, you know, saw the electronic era born and, you know, first job I ever had, we had computers. Uh, we had one computer, and we all shared it. Uh, at the age of 31, I was working at a television station where they introduced computerized teleprompters. And I didn't like it because it screwed up the timing of how, how long I knew a script would be that I plunked out on a typewriter. I've seen the whole history of the thing. One of the things that is beginning to be apparent, even to kids who were born and now adults who were born with no knowledge of a world without the internet is that there's something intangible about the internet and about computers and about computer generated stuff that is just not, it doesn't have the same feel. It, I, the only analogy I can make between the, the, the 1953 tops card I'm holding in my hands and you know, the internet and being able to make your own cards and just looking at pictures or whatever, or the countless availabilities of video the one analogy I can make is when people listen to vinyl albums of music, they go, I like this better. I don't know why I like this better because there's something literally visceral about putting the record on the record player and then you know, finding the groove with the, with the arm of the, and the needle of the, of the record player. There's something visceral about holding a baseball card in your hand. And I I understand about slabs. I understand that card like a 53 mantle needs to be kept in here because otherwise when I drop it, it's just that would have dinged all four corners. I understand about that. Most of my cards that I have obtained that have been come in, in slabs, I break them out. Mm. I'm a liberator. I'm a I'm a I'm a liberator of of slab cards. I will then put them in the albums. I was an early converter. I could, I had, my T206 collection was in albums with art corners when I was 13. So I believe in that and protecting the cards and everything else. But hold the card in your hand. 
when I got to be able to have the money to have a Hannes Wagner card, I bought three of them. I bought three of them so I could take one out of the holder very carefully <laughs> and put it in the album next to Vic Willis where it belongs. Wow. So I could take it out, and it was the, it's in poor condition. It will never be mistaken for the Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky Wagner. But I had one for that, and then I had another one that I would take places so I could show it to people, and they'd go, my God, it's actually here. Where's your <laughs> armed guard? It's like, no, I just put it on my pocket because it's safe unless you know it's in my pocket. I'm not going to lose it. I can tell it's there. And then the third one was just sort of was backup, sort of investment. But I take the cards out of the out of the out of the, the the holders and everything else, at least for a time, and actually feel it, and it smells in a certain way. A hundred and fifteen year old piece of paper smells a certain way, and the lithographic process smells a certain way. And a stack of fifty three tops, not in albums and not in slabs, smells and evokes things. Um, as will a stack of 2015 tops, because you know if you if you don't invest not just in this D Gordon Marlins card that I'm holding here, <laughs> not a D Gordon Marlins card, but this one. If you don't invest in this, this is not your card. When you see it again later, it it may evoke great memories, but it'll be a little less. It's a little, it's not quite the same. In an album that I brought down here, the 67 set that I brought down, it's my backup 67 set in case there's a fire. Checklist cards, where you actually would write that you got the card so you knew what you needed and what you didn't. The, the checklist cards are all the originals from my 67 collection. So that, that's, they just had a head of the player pictured. Like Frank Robinson is on one of the cards. I wrote in Frank Robinson's name when I was eight years old. That may be the oldest thing of mine that I own, other than my decrepit body. <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a personal thing. That particular D. Gordon card is going to evoke uh, your youth for you when your knees hurt or when you're trying to explain baseball to your kids or a kid somewhere. So collecting is essential. Uh, keep it within bounds. Don't go to the extreme. You don't need three Hannes Wagners, and neither do I. I just happen to have them. But, if there's a fire. Well, yeah. I mean, they're not all in the same place. <laughs> Off campus. That's right. Not all in the same time zone, but whatever. I'm giving away too many details. If you recall, Keith quickly mentioned words from a poem by Rolf Humphreys, which is titled Polo Grounds. The final stanza does well in not just ending the poem, but this episode as well. The shadow moves from the plate to the box, from the box to second base, from second to the outfield, to the bleachers. Time is of the essence. The crowd and players are the same age always, but the man in the crowd is older every season. Come on, play ball. Thanks for listening to Tops Talk, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Tops Talk. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email at topstalk at tops.com. 
Special thanks goes out to Clay Laraski and Leanne Minutoli, and once again, Keith Olbermann. This has been Episode 8 of Top Stock.